Hey, one more thing before you go. In this episode, what happens when you're a leading cosmetic dermatologist known around the world and you are given six months to live only to find out that you are misdiagnosed with ALS, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease, depression, anger, rage, and denial, along with learning to perform surgery with your left hand when you're right-handed were just a few of the things he had to endure. We're going to have a conversation with a man that experienced this life-changing journey and who ultimately learned to manage his chronic Lyme disease, becoming a successful author and a mentor to teach people the secrets to living a fantastic life. I'm your host, Michael Hurst. Welcome to One More Thing Before You Go. My guest in this episode is Dr. Alan Stephen Leica. He's a speaker, a trainer, an author, and respected cosmetic dermatologist. His life collapsed when he suddenly developed a right foot drop in 2003. Soon after, his right arm became dysfunctional and he was diagnosed with ALS. He was given six months to live. For years, he struggled with mental and physical obstacles and life questions when confronted with a life-altering near-death experience such as that. Shock. Denial, pain, guilt, anger, bargaining, and depression. He and I have a lot in common. Still, he maintains his status as a leading cosmetic doctor for 30 years. He later discovered he has chronic Lyme disease, and he was not going to die. As a result of this courage and determination, he is now a mentor, a transformational speaker, a thought leader, a podcast and radio show host, and we're going to learn his journey and how you can take the steps to live a more fulfilled life when faced with the same. Dr. Leica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure, Michael, to be here. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be on these shows, but I think yours is going to be very special. I, I agree. We met yesterday when I was uh, on your show, uh, How to Live an Inspired Life, and I really appreciated beyond being on there. And uh, I have to commend you, kudos, for what you provide to the world and uh, in the form of motivation and inspiration, uh, I think, and education, actually, um, allowing people to move forward in a very positive way. So first and foremost, thank you for being here. Well, thank you again for having me. It truly is my pleasure to be here. Well, I, I love to start at the beginning. So uh, like I said earlier, this is kind of like a, a replay of the old show, This Is Your Life. And what kind of go there? Where'd you grow up? Grew up in a city called Calgary, Alberta, Canada, the home of the Calgary Stampede, the greatest outdoor show hunter. You know, I grew up in uh, lower middle class parents. We had, uh, I had a very normal childhood. Uh, I, I remember playing cowboys and Indians and loving. Uh, we had one of the first black and white TVs in the district, and people would come around and watch it. I, I remember watching the test pattern on TV for hours on end before something would happen. And then uh, when it did happen, it was like uh, shows like Roy Rogers and uh, 
that sort of thing. And I, I remember the the old shows we used to watch and uh, the fun we used to have with them. But more importantly, I remember the games we used to play as a child. Uh, we'd always be playing. A, back then, we had dirt roads in our district. We had one street light per block. It was uh, no paved roads, nothing like that. Uh, yet we had a lot of fun. and. Uh, yeah, it was an idyllic life. I enjoyed uh, my time and, you know, growing up, uh, went to uh, school that was not located about three blocks away and uh, just having ordinary school. I don't remember being a remarkable student. I was more inclined to play than, than to be a, a great student. And, uh, you know, after I, I went through my childhood, I went through grade school, then in junior high, I, I went, had to bus to a school in another district. And, and that was a bit traumatic because once you had one school and then had to go to another, of course, you're not accepted right away. And that was difficult. Now, the good thing is I love to read and love books. So I basically uh, escaped into books and reading. And that's when I started taking more in an academic pursuit and, and, and learning things. Uh, high school, I had to go to, still to another district. And I went to a rather unique high school called Bishop Carroll High School, where there were no classrooms. You learned everything by the unit facts. So for social studies, for mathematics, they would have objectives at the beginning of each class. Now, for most of the, the studies, I could just uh, learn how to do this by learning the objectives. And I met the objectives almost as soon as they were written. So I didn't have to work hard in high school. Now, that was good and bad because I flew through high school. I had a motorcycle. I played a lot. I worked in a restaurant. And uh, that's what I ended up doing at the end of the day. Um, that cost me when I decided to go to college and university. So I had to spend at least one summer school to get up my credits together. I had to spend my time in a junior college to get enough credits to go to university. And finally, I was able to get to the University of Calgary. And uh, there it was competitive. I had decided I wanted to go into medicine. And medicine was a very, very, very difficult field to go into. Uh, you know, 300 people applying for every position that was available. But I worked hard and I kept on working. I got a Bachelor of Science Honors degree and a BA General before I decided, to get, before I was able to get in. And I was accepted at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, which is a, a city two and a half hours from the city that I was born in. And I ended up going there. It was interesting, the first week I moved up to Edmonton, I was then admitted to the University of Calgary as a medical school as well. But because I had already moved, I had decided that I wasn't going back. So I took my education at the bigger school at the University of Alberta. And it was a good uh, training. I, I learned a lot. I did my regular medical degree. Then I did what was called a rotating internship, where you rotated through all the fields. And then, you, then I ended up going to um, internal medicine, which was, again, 
uh, another pursuit in medicine. Now these were all difficult fields and I learned a lot, I did a lot. And during my training, I decided I wanted to get into dermatology. Now dermatology is also a very difficult field to get at. Probably a thousand applicants for each position. So I was, I, I did apply all over Canada and the United States. And at the end of the day, I ended up getting a position at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So I and my wife moved down there. We uh, uh, had two of our children in the United States. So they were dual citizens. And uh, I trained there. And then we came back to Edmonton where I practiced for 30 years. Um, what what got you into what, what what was your interest in cosmetology? What got you into dermatology, cosmetic dermatology in particular? Was you it know, it's it, interesting how how interests come on. Um, I the you know I did a rotation in dermatologist office right at the beginning of my training, and I was amazed how a dermatologist could walk into the into a room and figure out what something was in like in two seconds, you know, and no one else could figure it out except for the dermatologist. And I said, I got to have that knowledge. And then when I was in dermatology school, what happened is dermatology started changing. Instead of just being a diagnostic field, it also became a field where they had a lot of good toys. They had uh, lasers. They had uh, all these things that were just being invented for the field. And uh, dermatologists were always innovative and they invented things in such a way, for example, Plastic surgeons do liposuction, but dermatologists invented a way to do it under the local anesthesia. So a person didn't have to be put to sleep to get liposuction mm -hmm. done. They could do it under local. And so I, I just said, Jesus this is an interesting thing. I'm going to learn how to do that as well. And so as each new innovation came out, I learned it. Um, back in 1988, 1989, a, one, a Canadian dermatologist found that Botox helped to take wrinkles away. And uh, wow, he was just down the road from where I was. So I talked to him and he said, yeah, it really works. So I started experimenting with it, learning with it. And I found my own ways to use it, ways that he wasn't using. And uh, there also were other things known as fillers, such as collagen and stuff like that, that were used to fill in areas of the face that were losing volume. And those were wonderful. So again, I, I was there at the start of many of these things. I helped to modify many of these things, and I helped to take them up to the present day where they are now being used by thousands of people. You're so, a pioneer. I, you know, it was a fascinating day. We were, as I say, barnstorming days. We learned so much and did so much with all that. You you help with in regard to that. Kudos to all that. That's it's an amazing journey, especially being at the forefront and uh, like I said, a pioneer in regard to some of those uh, things that are being utilized today at such a, a large scale. Um, you. If I remember right, in, in some of your notes that I was provided with, you also helped with uh, a procedure with cancer, correct? Yes. Uh, you know, when I was going through dermatology, uh, there was a type of surgery called Mohs micrographic surgery. Now, Frederick Mohs was a surgeon in Wisconsin who found 
A rather unique way of removing skin cancers such as basal cell carcinomas and squamous cell carcinomas. And these tumors uh, would be cut off and then they'd be cut into smaller pieces, which we called sections, and then read under the microscope. Now, pathologists or other doctors that section these tumors would cut the tumors vertically. Uh, Frederick decided that he was going to cut the tissue horizontally. That way you could see all elements in one plane, and that way you could decide whether a tumor was invading or not and you could see everything like that. Now, Frederick invented this uh, in Wisconsin during the 1940s. And the reason he invented it in the 1940s is everybody was away fighting in Europe and he was, he, he just decided it wasn't the right way to do it. There wasn't anybody that uh, told him he was doing anything wrong. So he invented this type of surgery and did a great type of surgery. And then he taught thousands of doctors to do it. And, um, at the University of Minnesota, he would come to our school and teach us some of the surgery as well. And we also had a some people that were trained by him to, to do the surgery as well. So I learned this Mohs micrographic surgery uh, from Frederick and the people around him. And um, now there's schools that train people to do most micrographic surgery, but when I graduated, they were in their infancy. So I asked Frederick how to do this, how, what's the best way to learn this? And he said, you know, the best way is not to go to one of these fancy schools, he said. He said the best way is to do Mohs micrographic surgery, is to get the machine that cuts the tissue and learn it yourself. So uh, I did that and I learned it myself and was one of the pioneers in my area of doing that as well. So by the time I, I uh, ceased my practice in 2019, I probably had done tens of thousands of cancers by those techniques. The beautiful things about those surgeries, the cure rate was extremely high and it gave excellent cosmetic results for people and did an excellent job for people as well. That's amazing. Uh, congratulations for that. I mean, that is, it's an it's an opportunity. I think for um, my sister beat cancer twice, and um, it's a devastating disease, as we know. And in regard to the, um, I'm going to pause this for one second. Cool. Let's go. So, outstanding. You got me. Yay! I I, did how did you do that? Wow. Well, well while you were talking, I, I listened. Trust me, I'm a cop. I, I listen and can write at the same time. I wrote a text to the uh, ECAM support and said, how do I get my guest on the same? He's got a green screen. I can't get him on there. And they texted me back with uh, some uh, the uh, solution. So now I know, and now I know where they put it, and now you're, uh, we're the same. <laughs> So you're you're not you're not only a cop you're a very intuitive individual that learns rapidly from the situation and pivots and adapts which is truly some of the amazing things that you've done there. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I I try to always, as we say, growing the mind should always be a you know a point that we should strive for. So I always look to uh, continue to grow my mind and reach out and you know, uh, learn new things and uh, adapt. I've always learned to adapt and overcome. 
in my life, uh, grew up with a dysfunctional family. And then as a cop, I had to learn how to adapt and overcome through my injuries that we talked about, adapt and overcome. So yeah, here we are. Uh, and now we, now we're both blue. <laughs> Yay. Just like, just like you, the boys in blue. <laughs> the boys in blue. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Dr. Lika, tell me about your family now. You've got a, a wonderful wife and some kids and some grandkids, don't you? Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, my wife's a wonderful wife. She's been my wife for 40 years now and has put up with me that long. And it's been a, a wonderful time to have her. You know, she, I married her during medical school. She went with me to the University of Minnesota, helped me with my, have her children there. We've had three children at the time we moved back and we had a fourth one after that. Now we have the four daughters and we have seven grandchildren and there's an eighth one going to be on the way so i'm oh, very smoke. proud of that as i said uh, my my greatest accomplishments are my children and my grandchildren and i'm also very happy that my wife has made her children uh, enticed to stay in the area we see them regularly we do things with them regularly uh just on the weekend uh my uh, grandson, the only grandson I had, uh, was at a, doing a pre-piano recital. So we came in from our lake cottage to spend time with him doing the piano recital. Uh, we have a beautiful cottage at one of the lakes in northern Alberta where the whole family congregates. And not only my immediate family, but the extended family as well. So my wife's brothers and sisters are there and their children are there. So it's a rather unique situation. My wife's family and my wife's French and in Canada, you have uh, the two languages, French and English. I'm only English speaking, but my, we've been able to raise our children in both cultures and both languages. And so all of the grandchildren usually go to French schools, just like my uh, children went to French schools. So it's, it's a rather unique situation where they, uh, the whole family gets together and uh, has been able to keep their, their culture going and, and doing everything like that. And I, we're, we're thrilled that our children and grandchildren are able to do that in the language of their, you know, the second language so that they'll be totally bilingual when they grow up. And, you know, in this day and age, one of the few advantages you can have in the world is to be fluent in another language. Absolutely. You know, I, I, and I, I mean, not just a little bit, but totally fluent. That That is something that now in the States, I, I would suggest that anybody who doesn't speak Spanish should be because there's so many Spanish speaking people that it's it's a detriment not to be able to speak it. Um, yes, I would say yes and no. <clears throat> when I was a cop, I learned a little bit of Spanish um, only because it's going to sound bizarre. But, you know, we dealt with a lot of uh, immigrants and uh, illegal immigrants at the same time. So we had to be able to say certain things like, um, you know, uh, ask for identification and um, um, different things in regard to uh, ar the arrest or detainment of those individuals. So my Spanish was very limited, um, other than the dirty words, because, you know, we always learn those first. 
in any well, language. Especially when, especially when they were being told to you all the time. Exactly. In any language, you learn the, you know, those first. Uh, I, I grew up in an Italian environment, so my brother-in-law, my first brother-in-law, my, my sister's been married twice, but uh, my first brother-in-law and I spent a lot of time together, and we we were in Little Italy there, and I, so I learned Italian. Uh, from that, it was always come sedice. All the they would all come to me, come sedice, Michael, come sedice. How do you say? So I had to learn Italian, and I uh, worked. My first job was in an Italian restaurant. Both guys were literally. It was two guys from Italy, pizzeria. They literally was were from Italy. Um, now I've forgotten most of that. I still remember some of it. I took four years of French in high school. About that much. <laughs> no, and, and this is why I, I say it's a rather unique situation that my children not only get to learn French in, in like a French immersion, they get to live French. They get to live it. So, it, and that is a, a different situation, you know. I, I don't think four years of high school French really helps very much. It's, you yeah. know, bonjour and, and that sort of thing just doesn't cut it. You really have to be in a situation where you hear it spoken all the time and, exactly. and use it all the time. Exactly. One, you know, that is, I, I love the uniqueness of your family. And you are a very loving individual. When you talk about your kids, for those that are listening to this podcast, Though, when you talk about your kids and your grandkids, you light up. You get a big smile. You know your face lights up. You can see the glow. Um, family. We, we, you and I both understand the importance of family at a different level because of what you've yeah. been through and wh what I've been through. And uh, so I appreciate that from that perspective. Which brings us to an incident that took place in two thousand three that happened to you and your family. Yeah. Well, you know, my life changed in 2003, and at that time I thought it was for the worst, but I, I think now it's for the best. In 2003, I was walking with my dear wife and my youngest daughter in Disneyland, the happiest place on earth. Now, isn't that ironic? It is. Uh, my, my wife turned to me and said, what's wrong with you, hon? Uh, you know, I was taking it back. For once in my life, I hadn't said anything wrong. I hadn't done anything wrong. I hadn't even thunk anything wrong. So when she said that, I, I really didn't know what she was talking about. I told her so. Dear, what are you talking about? She said, listen to your foot. I said, dear, that's the stupidest thing you've ever said. She said, no, it's not. Listen to it. And my right foot had suddenly and mysteriously developed a right foot drop. Now, I don't know if you've had that experience with your back problem, but your foot is designed to lift up properly. It's not designed to flap on the pavement. And my foot was flapping on the pavement with each step that I was taking. She said, did you have a stroke? I said, no, dear, if I had a stroke, I probably would be lying on the pavement muttering something unintelligible. Well, she said, when you get back, you better get this checked out. <laughs> now, what do you do when your spouse says you better get it checked out? Well, you obviously, you know, the boss is the boss, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So you get it checked out. And that's what I did. I got it checked out. Uh, and I saw dozens of doctors, maybe hundreds of doctors by the time I was finally done. And they did CAT scans. They did brain scans. They even did scan scans. You know what they showed at the end of the day? Either the ALS or nothing. Well, they showed absolutely nothing. Yeah, and that's I've, I've been the there. difficulty with us. Yeah, is that 
you know, the doctors were befuddled. They thought I had a brain tumor. They thought I had a slip disc. They thought they, I had something that they could pin it down. So you know what doctors do when they find absolutely nothing? Well, the, the ones in my experience, because they did the same thing for me to diagnose my rheumatoid arthritis, it took several different uh, diagnoses to understand what I actually had. Um, so, so, so they do more tests. More tests. <laughs> and more tests. Exactly. And so more they, tests. Sent, they sent me to different doctors. I, oh, I, yes. Like you, I went to, well, you need to go to this doctor and we'll see what they say. And then this yeah, doctor, and, we'll see and, what and, they and, say. And, and each one of those doctors has a set of tests that they're familiar with and know. So they put you through this. And they even repeat tests because they don't trust the results of the tests that were done. And so it's like a whole cycle that you go through again. Yeah. And at the end, there still was nothing. So that's when they sent me to a world-leading neurologist. Now, a neurologist is the brain guy. He's the guy right. with all the answers to all the neurological problems. So they said, this guy's going to know the answer. He's like God. He knows the answer. So I went to see the neurologist and I walked in and I said, hi. And he said, hi back. He said, you better be sitting down when I tell you this. I said, why? He said, you have ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. He said, get your affairs. <laughs> you have six months to live. You know that I was, that's what he said. His exact words. And coming from the medical profession anyway, I mean, you understand a lot of this process. So I'm sure that the impact of another physician telling you that you have a devastating disease such as ALS um, probably took you back kind of to kind of well, forward you. It did. Well, what I did is I said, geez, is there a way to prove this diagnosis? And he said, yes, on autopsy. An autopsy. Wow, what an answer. <laughs> what an answer. And I, said, and I shot back, I'm not going to die to prove you wrong. You know, and, and but you know, as we talked yesterday, Michael, this is when you go on that journey, that yep. journey of anger. You go on that and, and you're angry at everything because you know there's something wrong and you know that you are you've got this diagnosis so you respond with your primitive reptilian brain with anger you thrash out at anybody and anything that's in your path and that thrashing results in in all the stuff that goes on and you get angry at your wife you get angry at your kids you get angry at your staff you get angry at everybody around you but you know the problem with that is the only thing good about anger is it motivates you. It just does no more than that. Then you go through bargaining. Oh God, please don't let this happen. I will do anything if you don't let this happen. You know, but I thought God wasn't listening, at least not then. Then you go through denial. You know, there is nothing wrong. I can really do anything. It, it, I just have a dropped right foot. But as you said in my history, my right hand started not working right. I couldn't hold those surgical instruments that I used to with my right hand, and I was right-handed. But I learned to use my left hand as a left-handed surgeon. And that was rather unique back in those days because there weren't the tools developed for left-handed surgery. You know, one of the tools we use is scissors. 
Well, if you're left-handed, you know there's left-handed scissors. Well, there weren't left-handed scissors for surgeons because all surgeons were right-handed. And uh, so I learned how to use left-handed scissors and I developed left-handed scissors and I developed other left-handed tools because I had to. And I got things done. I trained my staff to assist me and do things for me. And so I was able to do surgery despite the fact that my right hand wasn't working well. Uh, but the last thing you go through is depression. And, and Michael, you and I talked about depression and how evil that is. Depression is the worst thing because everything is black. You can't yep. eat, you can't sleep, there's no purpose to your life, there's nothing in your life. So you just keep on uh, going through the motions, you know. You stay in bed all day and you say, why the heck am I doing anything? I'm dying. Why do I need to do anything? Yep. Why and me? that black days are there. And, you know, I had decided back then I wasn't going to die from ALS. I wasn't going to die gasping for breath in my bed. And I said, I'm going to kill myself before that time. But, you know, before I did that, I went to my wife and I said, dear, what do I have? She says, you know, I haven't got the faintest idea. She said, uh, but you're smart. You'll figure it out. I said, dear, I've seen hundreds of doctors. They couldn't figure it out. And she said, you probably just haven't found the right doctor yet. Yeah, okay, that's smart, you know. So just like you, Michael, went through everything, and doctors said you're going to be confined to a wheelchair. Forget it. Don't, don't even hope for things. You know, you found the right doctor that did surgery on your back. I went yes, five doctors. Five yeah, doctors told me I'd be in a wheelchair. Yeah, but this is the thing. Every doctor has a set of skills and a set of knowledge, and mm -hmm. that's all they got. And, you know, it, it's like four blind men examining an elephant. You know, one looks at the trunk and says it's like that. Another one looks like the hoof and says the elephant's like that. Another one looks at the 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 tail and says the elephant's like that. And another one looks at the body and says it's like that. But really, it's the summation of all of those parts. And you got to find not the blind man, but the guy who can see, that can see all this. And, you know, back in the early 2000s, something new was invented. You might have heard about it. It's called the Internet. You ever hear about that, Michael? I'm working on it. I, I, I think I've passed through it once or twice. Yeah. And, and the thing about the Internet is that it was so primitive back in 2003. It was based on dial-on connections. So you had to put your phone in a cradle and it would go for like 15 minutes before it literally attached to the other phone. And then you had to use a primitive language like DOS to communicate because these phones had no memory, no meaning. So that's all you can do uh, with all that is, is get. Um, get on and then hope for the best. Now, I had friends that were nerds and they helped me to navigate this this beast. Now, the internet back then is like the internet now. It's like the world's best resource, but it's full of garbage cans and you can't tell the garbage cans from the good resources. So my friends helped me do that. And they found a doctor 
in Colorado Springs, Colorado, I'm by the name there. of Dave. Yeah, well, this guy's name was David Barnes, and he had a story very similar to mine. And he uh, was on his deathbed within two weeks of his diagnosis. And he was so well-known and so loved, doctors from around the world would come to say goodbye to him. And so uh, a doctor came up from Texas, a Dr. Harvey, and he said, he looked at David and he said, David, there's something wrong with your diagnosis. He said, I don't think you have ALS. And David whispered, because that's all they could do at that time. He said, what do I have? The doctor from Texas said, I think you have chronic Lyme's disease. I think you've been bitten by a tick and uh, you have a neurological illness that mimics ALS. So David said, what do I do? The doctor from Texas said, you don't have to do anything. I'm going to start you on treatment. And if I'm right, you're going to get better. And that's when the miracle happened. Like Lazarus, he was a rock. He arose from the dead. Within two weeks, he was back to his usual still. Now, David uh, decided at that point in time, he's going to find out if there's others that have this disease. And he started actually a clinic in, in, the, in the area called the Rocky Mountains uh, Chronic Disease Clinic, where he was treating upwards of 2,000 people with this weird disease. So I said, I got to get in touch with him. So I phoned every hospital in Colorado Springs, and I met up with David at the uh, Methodist Hospital, and we talked for hours. He said, can you come down to see me? I said, when? He said, what about right now? I said, David, it's Thanksgiving up in Canada. My wife's invited 50 people over. She'll kill me. He said, aren't there any planes in Canada? <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't going to let me get off that easy, Michael. So, you know, so I got, I went to my wife with my hat in hand and apologized. I said, dear, I'm not going to be here for Thanksgiving. She said, why? She said, I said, well, there's this doctor in Colorado Springs that claims he can help me. She said, well, what are you waiting for? <laughs> I can take there care of 50 people. She said, I'll pack your bags. I'll, I'll get you to the airport. Come on, you're wasting time. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful when we have a partner in life that supports us no matter what and pushes us yeah. in what we need to do and are there for us no matter what happens? Yeah, for sure. It's a and, wonderful and that's, thing. That's, it is a wonderful thing. So we got to the airport. I got on a plane from Edmonton to Denver. That's a two and a half hour flight. A wonderful flight. Then I got on this rinky-dink puddle jumper from Denver to Colorado Springs. Bobby ride. We're, yeah. Now the problem with that plane is that the air comes off the desert at the end of the day. And it causes the plane to get turbulence and eddies. And so the plane will be flying along and it'll drop a hundred feet without warning. Then I'll drive and climb up again and it'll drop 200 feet without warning. And it does this over and over and over again 
for 50 minutes. The 15-minute flight is the flight from hell. It's like yes. the drop of doom. It's like a roller coaster. It's like a Ferris wheel, all put together, all in that little bit of time. So everybody who got off that plane crawled off, and they were green, and I was amongst them. And that's when the miracle happened. I got off, and there was David Martz on the tarmac to me. Wow. You see, back then, it was the early 2000s. And, yeah. You know, there was this terrible thing that happened with some planes crashing into buildings at the World Trade Center and what have you. But there weren't all the high security precautions put on yet, you know. So right. what happened is he drove onto the tarmac. He came to me and then we talked for hours. And he said these magic words. I think history is repeating itself. So it certainly did. But you know, when you go through something like this, Michael, you go through the phases that, you know, did I really do things with my life that were important? Did I really live? Did I love? Did I really matter? Did I really do anything important? So I started to give back more. And I sponsored an event called the, the event called the YWCA's Women of Distinction. Now, as you probably realize, women still are not honored to the same extent that they should in our society. Unfortunately, they and are not. Unfortunately, they are not. And so I decided to change that. So by sponsoring this event, I thought it would be a good thing. And this is where I met my co-author, Harriet Tinka. Harriet came to, the, to apply for an award called the Turning Points Award. And she applied... Uh, to this award because she had a very dramatic story. Harriet had a story similar to mine, but very different. She was a world-class model walking the runways of New York and uh, Milan and Paris. But you know, at, in her early 20s, she grew tired of the industry. It was a terrible dog-to-eat dog industry, and she wanted to take up her second love, which was accounting. Now, to do that, she went to the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, which is a city just two and a half hours south from where I live. And there she met a psychopath who kidnapped her, stabbed her, and left her for dead. Now, she does not know how she got to the hospital, but she got there. And there she met an amazing angel by the name of Amber. Amber was a little girl who was wheeling down the hallway in a wheelchair and she had lost the use of her legs and both of her parents in a car accident. And she met Harriet and asked Harriet her story. And she gave Harriet heck and said, Harriet, you should be ashamed of yourself. She said, you're moping around. And she said, look at me. She said, I'm going to make a difference with my life in the world. She said, I challenge you to do something with yours. Tell your story to empower people. So Harriet had applied for the Turning Points Award, not to win the award, but to meet me. And she said, Dr. Leica, can I take you for lunch? Well, I said, of course, love to talk to you. That's where we shared our stories. And that's where Harriet said, Dr. Leica, we have to write a book. Yeah, that's where my book came out, co-authored with Harriet Ticka called The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life. And this book is the two survivors reveal the 13 golden pearls they've discovered. And 
we found 13 golden pearls of living a fantastic life. And this is all covered in this little book. This book has them in there. Now, these golden pearls are unique. You know, golden pearls actually exist in nature. A pearl is formed because a grain of sand gets inside of an oyster and it traumatizes it. Now, golden pearls exist in the South Pacific and a single solitary pearl is so rare that it costs upwards of $10,000. So the golden pearls we found inside of everybody are so spectacular. They're far more valuable than the golden pearls in, in, that are in the South Pacific. So I wanted to call these golden nuggets and Harriet said, no, you don't. She said, these are not like fast food. She said, like McDonald's. She said, these are rare special things. She said, let's call them pearls. So that's where we came to the concept of pearls in our book. You know, that's what an amazing journey. And, you know, the fact that uh, uh, a young little girl gone through what she had gone through uh, inspired her to reach out to you and change her life and your life. Yes, it, it, it is truly an amazing set of circumstances that have come out, and it's amazing that way. But, you know, in 2020, a pandemic hit the face of the earth. So my idea was to do speaking engagements all over the place and get the message out there and get the book out there. Well, you know that 20 trillion dollar speaking industry evaporated overnight. Yeah. So what was I going to do? So I started uh, do going on other people's podcasts. So, yeah, this is working to a certain extent, but I only can be on so many podcasts. So I said, I'm going to now uh, develop my own podcast. And I started a fledgling podcast and then it became more popular. And so it, uh, it was picked up by a network of radio stations and we had four shows a week and people loved it. And so it became a bigger radio station as well. And so we now do 12 shows a week with 3 million listeners a month. And so uh, you know, it, it truly is a, a wonderful life. And people can listen to that show on AM, FM, 24-7. There are times that are associated to the shows that I have. But you can see all the archives that are there as well. Uh, you can pick up a copy of my book, The Secrets to Living a Fantastic Life, uh, on Amazon. That's probably the best way to get them. And you can check me out at uh, Dr. Dr. A-L-L-E-N, like L-Y-C-K-A dot com. And the thing that empowers me and makes me happy is to help other people. So I also do coaching both individually and in groups. I, I do my radio show and I just am trying to make a difference in this world that we have now. And as Michael and I talked yesterday, the world needs some help right now. It's amazing how much help it needs and how much the difficulties that are out there. I mean, every day we are having some sort of crisis, some sort of difficulty. It seems to be a never-ending cycle. 
Unfortunately, it, it does seem to be a never-ending cycle. But there's always hope at the end of that tunnel. If you, um, like we talked about yesterday, and you know, I try to employ this throughout my podcast and each one of my programs, that you know, we if we take the time to be grateful for what we do have, we take the time to, to talk to nature, relax, uh, take the time for ourselves, uh, you have the opportunity to make your day a wonderful opportunity to help inspire yourself or to motivate someone else in the right direction, which, which is what you do with your show and what you've done with your book. And I find it, I, I have to smile because even in our conversation yesterday, I didn't know we had the Colorado Springs connection either. So we have several things in common. And one of them is I grew up in Colorado Springs. I worked in Colorado Springs. That's where I was a cop in that area. And, uh, uh, you went, that's how you, you came down and got cured. Exactly. As I say, it's, I'm always amazed as I go through life, how we connect the dots and the dots are, are, are common. I, I think one of the biggest purposes I have now is collecting the dots for a lot of different people and making things happen for them. And, and the more that I connect the dots, the more things happen. And that is being a great thing, you know. For example, my number one pearl, pearl number one that Harriet and I decided would be number one is love. Why love? Because nothing happens without love. Love has to be the greatest thing, the greatest thing everywhere. And we always start each chapter with a quote. And a quote that I have is, I believe that dreaming is stronger than reality. Desire is more potent than apathy. Hope is more powerful than despair. Joy always triumphs over sorrow. That laughter is the ultimate cure for man's foibles. And I believe love is stronger than hate, and it's the greatest gift of all. How do I know? I've been fortunate to experience them of all. That's a quote of me of quoting myself from the first chapter. So, you know, I, I think if we are that way. Now, just before I was on this show with you, I did a radio show with a, a, an amazing individual by the name of Ian Hill. And Ian Hill has been in Canada many times. And he told me the story of being in Oshawa, Ontario, which is a small town when he was doing some work there and he was going around with city <laughs> officials and there at the city, uh, they went to a school and all the city officials deferred to the janitor, you know, the custodian. And he couldn't figure it out why. And he asked why he said, this is because you've all been gone to the school. And he said, no, um, the janitor is so said it's because I have a very simple, principle. He said, said, everybody I see, I love, and I express my love to them. Now, picture how powerful that message is. If everybody you see, you express your love to. Yeah, that's amazing. Actually, I, it, ironically enough, I had a conversation on Monday in regard to uh, that subject in particular. And the fact that uh, there's not enough love in this world and that uh, if we take the opportunity to stop and love, it gives us 
fulfillment within our lives. It allows us to be grateful. It allows us to recognize what and who we have in our lives around us. So profound statement, Dr. Leica, that we should reach out and understand and embrace love and share that. You know, and I challenge everybody that's listening to this call to do something for somebody else they wouldn't do today. Just do a small act of gratitude, something tiny, and make the world a better place. I challenge everybody to do something. That maybe it's just saying hi to their neighbor across the fence. Maybe it's taking some cookies over to their neighbor that you baked. Maybe it's just doing something that's, that's tiny. Because really, the world will be a better place if you do those tiny things. Uh, doesn't have to be big ones. It's little things. Yeah. Little things mean a lot. Little things mean a lot. Dr. Leica, thank you very much for uh, joining me on the show. This is one more thing before you go. So I know that you just relate a whole bunch of wisdom already. But can I ask you, do you have any words of wisdom before we go? Remember, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens. That is a very fundamental philosophy that you should take to heart. Remember, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens. Outstanding words of wisdom. I appreciate that. It makes me smile. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show and the program. I really appreciate meeting you. I appreciate uh, you being part of my life from this perspective and in the future. Uh, thank you for what you do for the world. So thank you for being here. Stay well. And God bless. Thank you very much for listening to One More Thing. Before you go, please remember to subscribe and or follow us. We are found on each and every platform, including here on YouTube as well. Um, don't forget to support us. Look, visit the shop before you go podcast.shop. That's before you go podcast.shop and download our free app on iOS and Google. It's provided by SuperPass, our sponsor. Please, it's free and you can carry one more thing before you go each and every place that you want to go and reach out and listen and watch anytime you want. So again, one more thing before we go, have a great day, have a great week, and thanks for joining the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website at beforeyougopodcast.com. That's beforeyougopodcast.com. Tell your story, share your expertise, contribute to the blog, and subscribe to the newsletter. You can find us as well as subscribe to the program and rate us on your favorite podcast listening platform. One More Thing Before You Go, a unique conversation about life podcast, is a creation of One More Thing Productions, established 2010, all rights reserved.